<laughs> Not many people there.
Good morning. Welcome to worship at St. John's Episcopal Church in Haven, Connecticut. Glad to welcome both of those of you who are here in person uh, coming through our first snow shower of the year and those of you who are joining us from afar. Um, for those of you who are on Zoom, we ask for you please to remain muted, but if your bandwidth allows it to turn on your video feed. I'm Paul Smith. I'm the pastoral associate at St. John's. Uh, our priests in charge, Chuck and Helen Dale Hoffman, will be joining us via Zoom. Uh, as Helen Dale is recovering from knee surgery. So today we will be having a slightly different format of the service than you're used to. We'll be doing a service of morning prayer, um, which um, will still have many of the elements but arranged in a different way from a normal service. Uh, our preacher today is J.D. Gunn, who's a long-term member uh, working on his PhD here at, at Yale, but he's come back from Heidelberg to join us today. And it's so good to see you back again here, Jamie. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And so during Advent, as we prepare our hearts to receive Jesus, um, we will start by singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, as I invite Nathan and Tori Jowers to light the first candle on our Advent tree. The first candle is often thought of as representing Faith and also, or also prophecy. Downstairs for Children's Chapel. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with the joy and care of children. Give us calm strength and patient wisdom as we bring them up, that we may teach them to love whatever is just and true and good, following the example of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. 
watch. For you know not when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Let us kneel and confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Um, Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. Please stand for the inventory. Lord, open our lips. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Our King and Savior now draws near. Come, let us adore him. Let us say together, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and raise a loud shout to him with songs. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the caverns of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands have molded the dry land. Come, let us bow down bend the knee and kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand oh that today you would hearken to his voice to you O Lord I lift up my soul my God I put my trust in you let me not be humiliated nor let my enemies triumph over me Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and love for they are from everlasting. Mm -hmm. 
Gracious and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in his way. All the paths of the Lord are love and faithfulness to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, it is now, and shall be forever. reading from the book of Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name for which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Please remain seated as we read this first song of Isaiah responsively. Surely it is God who saves me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord is my stronghold. Therefore, you shall draw water with rejoicing from the springs of salvation. Amen. 
Make his deeds known among the peoples. See that they remember that his name is exalted. Cry aloud, inhabitants of Zion. Ring out your joy, for the great one in the midst of you is the Holy One of Israel. Glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. A reading from the first epistle to the Thessalonians. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We stand and join in saying the Gloria together. Glory to God in the highest, and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High. Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Please be seated for the third reading. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth, distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. 
Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life and that they catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The word of the Lord.
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's my very great pleasure to be with you again and to see your lovely faces, even if covered partially by the masks that we're wearing. Uh, I have missed you greatly, and I bring with me warm greetings from the Anglican Church in Heidelberg, as also from the Mosaic Gemeinde, which is the non-denominational church I sometimes attend when I'm in need of something more lively. Today, as we've already heard, is the first Sunday of Advent, and the start of a sermon like this would usually be the place to expound on the great wisdom of the lectionary and the significance for us Anglicans of the liturgical calendar. Instead, though, dear St. Johnnies, I'll begin with a little confession. Sometimes I find all this liturgical calendar and lectionary stuff a bit much. I suppose the worst time is Easter, when people after the service come bounding, bounding up, eyes bright and bushy-tailed, thrilled with excitement that Christ is risen. Yes, I think to myself privately, as was also the case yesterday, and has been now the case for some 2,000 years now. And yet, dear St. Johnny's, and yet, when I look at the readings for today, even my cold, baptistic heart is forced to admit that there actually is a lot of wisdom in the choices that have been made here. And that is because as we enter Advent, the season where we wait with hope and expectation for the coming of Christ at Christmas, we are actually being pointed beyond this, beyond Christmas itself, to the proper object of our hope and expectation, that is, to Christ's second coming at the end of human history. This is why the readings for today, in Advent though we now are, are not very well Christmassy. Instead, what we find here are dire forebodings and warnings, prophecies of disturbances so harrowing that people will literally faint in fear because of them. There was a time in New Testament scholarship when it was fashionable to deny that the sorts of things that are being said here authentically belong to Jesus and to see them instead as the product of the excitable imagination of a few of his later disciples. Not anymore. If anything, in fact, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction, and the consensus now is that we are dealing here with the very words of Jesus, or at least something very like them. The first two paragraphs of our reading for today appear, in fact, in all of the synoptic Gospels, and in more or less the same place. Jesus' temple discourse in Jerusalem, right at the end of his teaching ministry. Here in this wider discourse, Jesus has been laying out a blueprint, however figurative or impressionistic, for the unfolding of events at the end of all things. This begins with his prediction of the destruction of the temple, carried out, we know, by the Romans in AD 70, following which, Jesus says, there will be wars and rumors of wars. These things will take place, but the end will not come yet. Rather, nations will rise against nations. There will be earthquakes, famines, and pestilence, and great signs and terrors in the heavens. Jesus' followers will suffer persecution and martyrdom. And finally, Jerusalem itself will be surrounded and conquered. 
until, says Jesus, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. This already sounds pretty bad, but the worst is still to come. And this is where our gospel reading for today begins. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, says Jesus, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There is so much to talk about here, but I want to begin by reflecting on the multi-dimensional character of the cataclysm that is being described. It will be cosmological, says Jesus, with signs in the sun, moon, and stars. It will be ecological, with the seas roaring and the earth thrown into chaos. It will be global and political, says Jesus, bringing distress among the nations, but also intensely personal, with people fainting from fear. Notice also the 360-degree sensory character of the events being described. It will be over us, says Jesus, in the heavens, under us, on the earth, around us, in the roaring and the waves of the sea. People will see it with their eyes, will hear it with their ears, and will feel it in their hearts. Causing with and fear. It's hard to think of an appropriate comparison, but in preparing for the king of a soldier from the First World War, with gunfire whizzing overhead and bomb blasts detonating nearby, the cataclysm, Jesus says, will be all around us, producing full sensory overload. Like for the soldier in the trenches, Luke wants to draw our attention especially to the feeling of entrapment that this will produce. In our passage, it says that there will be distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. But in Greek, the two words distress and confusion both have a claustrophobic kind of resonance. Sunoke, the word for distress, can also be translated as anxiety and literally describes the state of being held together in a narrow place. The confusion caused by the Greek Sorry, not caused by the Greek. The confusion caused by the waves is in Greek aporia, literally no way through or no way out. Something terrible is coming that will see the earth and the very powers of heaven shaking, and it will seem that there is no escape. I wonder how many of you have ever had a panic attack. I have had two in my life, or maybe one and three quarters. And the three-quarters one happened relatively recently. A few days afterwards, I heard a sociologist and a psychologist talking about the common causes of panic and anxiety, which they reduced to a combination of two factors. One, the thought of an object or challenge that completely outstrips our capacities to meet it. And two, our inability to extricate ourselves from the situation in which we are going to be forced to confront it a hungry lion prowling outside the cave with no way out except by meeting the lion. Anxiety. A hard deadline we know we won't have time to make, but no way out without meeting that deadline. 
My guess is that even for those of us who have had the good fortune never to have had a panic attack, these are relatable experiences. We all know what it is to experience anxiety and even to live through extended periods of this. We know what it is to have too much adrenaline in our bloodstream, for a flight or fight response to have been triggered, to find it harder and harder to breathe. For those struck with this feeling, either at the end of history, but also I think for those who are struck with it now, Jesus has some counterintuitive advice. Stand up, he says, and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Actually, in Greek, stand up and raise up your heads is really the same advice twice. Straighten up. There's no need to cower. Bent over in the corner. There's no need for fight or flight, natural as these responses might be. Why? Because the Son of Man is coming. With great power and great glory and is coming to rescue and redeem. The imagery that Jesus makes use of here, the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory, can also be found in the apocalyptic literature of the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Daniel. Also behind this, though, is an older set of imagery, found, for example, in Psalm 18, a psalm which has become particularly meaningful to me. I love you, O Lord, my strength, the psalmist begins. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He rescued me from those who were too mighty for me. He brought me out into a broad place because he delighted in me. Among the Lutheran pietists, particular emphasis was laid in preaching on what they called the modus mysticus secundi, or the mystical mode of teaching, which was similar to the tropological sense in medieval exegesis. Using this method, the goal is to take the literal sense of what a Bible passage is teaching and to ask how this might apply to each of us spiritually or to the state of our own souls before God. And so, dear St. Johnny's, using this Modus Mysticus Secundi, 
I want to remind each of you and myself that when we too feel confronted by an object too powerful for us to face, when we too feel trapped and that there is no way out, that we are to stand up and raise up our heads. To adopt, that is, the posture of faith rather than the posture of fear. Why? Because our redemption is drawing near. Because we too have a God who is bigger than any catastrophe or challenge that can befall us, who will ride on a chariot, surrounded by fire and by cloud, to deliver us from our enemies. Lift up your heads, dear St. Johnny's. He is coming. Yes, at the end of history, but also in the here and the now. And one of the great privileges of the Christian life is that we get to experience this deliverance over and over again. And yet, and yet, the weakness of this modus mysticus dependi, at least when practiced to the exclusion of other exegetical methods, is that it can sometimes distract us from the literal sense of what scripture is trying to tell us and can reduce to the level of Jesus and my heart things which are actually in the final analysis much bigger and much more important than that. And so would be the risk here if we concentrated too much on the many and sundry ways in which Jesus saves and redeems us from our ordinary struggles and anxieties, and not enough about what he is trying to tell us here in scarily detailed terms about the end of human history. This is also important because many, the many small deliverances we experience are never complete or total. Sometimes we might even wonder why God is delaying to help us. Sometimes we might even feel let down. But this is an article of faith, dear St. Johnny's, and one that we will shortly confess in the creed that one day Jesus will come again. Not this time in meekness, as was the case with his first coming, but this time with great power and great glory, for the purpose of our final redemption, for judging the living and the dead, and for ruling with his saints on earth in a kingdom that will have no end. This will not take place in our hearts in any spiritual or mystical way, but literally and physically. It will be a 360 degree sensorily immersive experience. And those who are living on the earth at the time will see it and will hear it. And so will those of us who have died when the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised. When will this happen? Unfortunately, we don't know. A point which was a puzzle, an embarrassment for the earliest Christians, and remains a puzzle for us today. This is the problem of the so-called delayed parousia, in layman's terms, Jesus taking his sweet time, in passages, uh, in spite of passages like our second paragraph here, the parable of the fig tree, that seem to suggest that he would be coming back rather sooner. Much hinges here on the interpretation of the contested phrase, this generation, which Jesus says will not pass away until the things he has described have taken place. And different commentators propose different solutions. This generation, say some, must have referred to Jesus's immediate contemporaries, which means Jesus was basically wrong to have made the prediction he made. Others suggest this generation refers to the Jewish people, as it sometimes does in other literature from the time, 
Or perhaps it means that all human beings, or the generation of the end times, beginning at the time of Jesus and extending down even today. Don Carson, that most wily and cunning of exegetes, thinks that the fig tree passage here appears out of order and is really referring to the destruction of the temple, in which case this generation would be literal, but Jesus' words fulfilled in AD 70. Ultimately, I don't think we know, just as we don't know when exactly Jesus will return. Somehow, mysteriously, not even Jesus knew. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father, he said. Although there are further and mysteries, mysteries and puzzles here with respect to the nature of Jesus' knowledge. But before our ignorance about such things should lead us into apathy, it is important to consider the third and final section of our Gospel text and what Jesus himself would have our response be in response to his own delays. Be on your guard, says Jesus. Keep watch and pray, so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and the day catch you unexpectedly, like a trap. Don't take your eyes off the ball, says Jesus. Or let my own tarrying distract you from the things that are really important. Stay ready. Stay alert. Watch and wait for my coming. In fact, we're given two sets of instructions here. One set for what not to do, and one for what to do instead. Starting with what not to do, Jesus points us to a vicious triad consisting of depression, anxiety, and the counterproductive medications taken as means of dealing with these. Dissipation and drunkenness. Two words in Greek which literally refer to alcohol, strong drink, and the hangovers refer, uh, resulting from them. We can already see here in Jesus' words a sketch of how these three, these three things work together. Weighed down by the cares and troubles of this life, like the seed in the parable of the sower choked by the weeds around it, we turn perhaps to alcohol, a worryingly accurate diagnosis in my case, though really here you can add your own poison. Netflix, binges, comfort food, social media overload, pornography. But these things only deepen the depression that were brought on by our troubles in the first place. And so we sink deeper and deeper into the mire either in a state of distraction, preoccupied and concerned with all the things that worry us, or spaced out, numbed up, with our sharpness and senses blunted as a means of avoiding the pain. And so we spend our days. And so we lose our focus on the things that really matter, on Christ and his coming kingdom. Instead, though, Jesus has a counter-proposal. As an alternative to the vicious triad, he calls us instead to be alert, to keep watch and to pray, to expectantly look and wait for his coming. He tells us to do this at all times, and we should do this, maintaining a spirit of prayer by checking in with him regularly throughout the day, the week, all times, all times and in all seasons. But perhaps, dear St. Johnny's, here again, the authors of the church calendar have wisdom. 
by designating special times of the year when we can redouble our efforts and devote ourselves to prayer in a yet more deliberate and intentional way. The last time I preached at St. John's, it was the start of Lent, and as a church we agreed to dedicate ourselves in that special season to a more intensive period of watching and waiting. We did this both corporately in the form of our 24-7 Easter prayer vigil, and also individually. I encouraged each of you and myself to set aside a special place in our homes and a special time when we could devote ourselves more fully to prayer. And at risk of preaching the same sermon twice, it seems in the end that my job and my message to you is similar here today. So as we enter this special season of Advent, as we look to the coming of Christ, I appeal to you, don't be distracted. Don't let your guard down. Jesus is coming. Keep watch and pray. Find perhaps a special place in your homes. Carve out a special time of day. Light a candle. Read a psalm. Watch and wait for him. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus.